The True Crime Society podcast contains adult themes and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the True Crime Society podcast with Stephanie and Olivia and Peep. She's here, too, as always. <laughs> and Fresh Butt's here, too. He just walked in, but he usually doesn't cause as much trouble as her. Today is May 25th, which I don't think it should matter for really any of these cases. Most of them are kind of closed, done deals, but we'll see and we'll, we'll get into all that. Um, finally going to talk about stalkers. We've been putting this episode off for a while, <laughs> not on purpose, just because there was uh, other cases that popped cases. up. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we'll get into those. Oh yeah. And just as a reminder to everyone, because I always forget to say it, but this time I was like, bitch, you better remember for the people <laughs> who don't want to hear us talk or chat at all for the eight minutes that we chat, there's a little timestamp in the episode description. So if you want to fast forward right to the start of the episode, you could just click that and it'll bring you right there or at least tell you where to fast forward to on whatever app you're listening. And if you are new to the podcast, we don't chat like this the whole time. We just have kind of a little chat at the start. Then we get into the crime, you know, right where this timestamp is. So if you like the chat, that's great. But if not, you can definitely skip forward. Yeah. And for the people who hear us say that all the time, you're like, we know, shut up. We like hearing you chat. Sometimes we just, we got to remind everyone because every, every time. Every, still every single week, I think we get a comment. Can you just get, get to it? You know, and I know we have new people listening every week. So I feel like it's handy for those people. Yeah. Like the first comment I got on the episode that came out today was too much girly talk or girly <laughs> chat. <It's> like, <sighs> <laughs> Fun times. <laughs> I'm just going to change the name of the podcast to There's a Timestamp. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, so this episode will come out like two days before my wedding. So exciting. It's finally nearly here. I've gotten to the point where I don't know if it's like my defense mechanism or it's like almost like dissociating, but I'm just like, if I just don't think about it, it'll all be okay. <laughs> but it's hard because everyone's like emailing me and asking me questions and all this stuff. But I'm trying not to overthink anything so I don't have anxiety because then I get into like an anxiety loop when I'm trying to go to bed, be like, oh, I have to remember to do this and I have to remember to do this and I have to remember to bring this and order this and pay this. Mm. And then I don't sleep and then I'm cranky. I remember after my wedding, I was so stressed and I like I read this thing. I think I don't know if I've spoken about it before, but there's actually a thing like, and I'm, this isn't the right terminology, but people actually go into like a slump after their wedding because they had so much to do. And now you're like, oh, now you've got all this free time back and all this less stress, hopefully. So it's a yeah, weird of, kind of transition period. One of my coworkers was telling me that, but I feel like mine's only a 50 person wedding. So it's a much smaller scale and I'm not doing anything like super crazy, but still there's so many just little details and things you yep. have to keep in mind. And it, even if I'm like sitting and relaxing for a minute, I'm like, no, I have to do this. I have to do this. Like <laughs> I'm always like, whenever there's a minute I could be sitting, I'm like, I should be doing something else instead. <laughs> That's You're nearly there. Nearly at general. the finish line. Yeah. I'm just ready for it to like happen and have fun already. I fly out on Wednesday, so it's Friday morning here, so not too much longer to go. So that's very exciting. I have put in for an upgrade on my flight, so I'll be very excited if I get mm. that. <laughs> I'm still not confident, but we'll see. So yeah, should be good fun. 
what kind of like upgrade would it be? Like, do you get a one of the lay down <laughs> seats? Yeah, well, that's what it would be. So I'm, I've oh just booked like a co- economy flights, which you know, because it's 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 a, well, it is a long way. I've done that flight that flight to LA. So I fly to LA, then I fly to New York. So I've done that flight to LA a ton of times. Um, but and when I did it last time, obviously I had the kids, so there's no way we would have got an upgrade for four people. But I've put in for this time, so fingers crossed. One one person is a little bit more likely hopefully, based on the seats that are left at the moment. Let them know that we have 100,000 followers on Instagram. <laughs> that you Give can, them a shout you out. You can tag them. <laughs> Is that a humble brag for our 100K this week? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we finally did it. It really felt like a long stretch from like 98 to 100. Yeah, it did take a little while, but we got there in the end. I have to remind myself, though, that every like 98.7, like that point is the thousand no oh yeah yeah, it is so yeah well it's a hundred so 99.7 yeah. 99.8 yeah that's a hundred yeah like it's not because when you look at it you're just like ah, oh, but it doesn't change so there's another hundred yeah i wish it told you every single time it went up but it yeah it just gives you the general the general numbers <laughs> i think it would if we switched back to like a business or creator oh, yeah. account but we had to shut that off because we kept getting in trouble and uh, <laughs> someone told us like if you switch to not be a business account and just stay like a personal account you get in trouble less and that was definitely true in our case anyways yeah well we haven't don't want to jinx it but nothing's happened since so it could also no. be that we went back and deleted anything remotely funny <laughs> and when i yeah. say funny i mean like memes A and meme. stuff not making fun of people but you know funny memes that we'd ever posted so or literally anything with serial killers old yeah. serial killers because that's like a, a trigger apparently <laughs> um we have like a little cra- – well, it's like a big update, but like a little update, but a highly anticipated update last night. Um, the Everyone remembers the Gabby Petito case um, with Brian Laundrie. Everyone thought his parents were like really crazy and maybe kind of knew about the murder and were trying to help him. There was always this letter that Roberta, the mom, wrote to Brian, and the front of it said burn after reading, and there was references to helping bury a body with a shovel or helping you break out of jail. and. Everyone thought that was weird and suspicious. So the Petitos are now suing the laundry, saying that they caused them like emotional distress and that they knew that Gabby was dead and didn't tell them or put any effort into helping. I'm literally just saying this from my memory. So if anything isn't 100% correct, I apologize. But that's I've got the, that's the vague here. story. Do you want me to read parts of it or yeah. have you got it up? I don't. But so the letter they were fighting to have the Petitos are fighting to have this letter released because they thought it might show proof that um, Roberta or the parents knew that something was going on. Something bad happened to Brian that he murdered Gabby, essentially. And the laundries were fighting to not have this letter released because they said that it was written months before and it was unrelated. It was just like a quirky letter full of jokes that like Brian and her would understand about like a book they read and it was just it, she wrote it during a time when their relationship was strained and that it was written months before they even went on their trip but there's no date on it and the another the next controversial fact of the letter is where this letter was actually found because we were initially told by i guess it was the petitos lawyer but i feel like even before that people were saying they always said that once when they found brian's remains he had a backpack and there was like a notebook and like papers and stuff in it so petitos lawyer said that the letter was in that notebook with his remains which makes it seem like it was a more recent letter than something that was written months ago like yeah, why would you be carrying him. around a letter that you had for months i feel like yeah 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 That's but a significant now 
the laundry's attorney are saying that the police had this way before they found the body. It was not with the body. And they've had this for a few months, a few months before the body was found. So we don't really know what the truth is yet. Um, the letter is pretty unhinged. I don't know if it proves <laughs> anything besides the fact there's definitely some sort of family drama dynamic. going on, yeah. in my opinion, and that I would hate to have her as a mother-in-law. Yeah. Do you want to read some little excerpts or the whole thing, whatever? Um, We might as well. I can read the whole thing quickly if you want. It's pretty short. So I think the letter, like they so they posted photos of kind of the envelope and then the two pages of the letter. The main page says Brian Christopher Laundry and then kind of in brackets it says burn after reading. That's the front envelope cover. Just as a little interesting thing, I also find it interesting that he's Brian Christopher and so is Brian Koberger. He's also Brian so Christopher. So weird. I oh, know, so weird. What are the odds, really? Anyway. We need to find out Brian Walsh. <laughs> Imagine. I will. I'll look I, up after this. I'd pass right, away. So, so it says, I just want you to rem- remember I will always love you and I know you'll always love me. You are my boy. Nothing can make me stop loving you. Nothing can or ever will divide us no matter what we do or where we go or what we say. We will always love each other. If you're in jail, I will bake a cake and put a file in it. If you need to dispose of a body, I will show up with a shovel and garbage bags. If you fly to the moon, I'll be watching the skies for your re-entry. If you say you hate my guts, I'll get new guts. <laughs> that bit always makes me laugh. <laughs> so Remember that love is a verb, not a noun. It's not a thing. It's not words. It's actions. Watch people's actions to know if they love you, not their words. Therefore, I am certain that neither death nor life nor angels nor the ruling spirits nor things present nor things to come nor powers from above nor powers from below Nothing in the entire created world can separate our love. Neither hostile powers, nor messengers, nor heaven, nor monarchs, nor earth. Nothing has the power to separate us. And then that's a quote from Romans 8.38. And it finishes with, Nothing can separate us. Hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not threats, not backstabbing, not even sin. Not the unthinkable or thinkable can get between us. Not time, not miles and miles and miles. The end. <laughs> a lot of people have messaged us saying they they read that as if she was kind of encouraging him to kill himself. Um, I can kind of see mm. that. I feel like it's just a weird. I absolutely think it was in his backpack at the scene. Yeah, that's my thought on that. Because they also said the papers weren't they, they? They were in a plastic bag, luckily, or else they would have been wet. Because they yeah, because his flooded. notebook was a little bit. Um, wet like they've released photos of the notebook and it was kind of you know when the writing bleeds if it gets wet Mm -hmm. Um, but this looks fairly well preserved from the photos that we've seen yeah honestly I wouldn't be surprised either way maybe they didn't know that he murdered Gabby or like they maybe suspected it or just it was one of those things where they're like let's not talk about it but we all know deep down Um, but I also don't think the letter really proves that. I feel like it just proves that they're she was controlling it's a weird and relationship. Obsessive, yeah. And clearly there was some sort of strain on their relationship, like she said, which is why she allegedly wrote the letter. And that could also just add more reason as to why maybe Brian was very on edge. Maybe there was something going on in their family or in their personal lives, which yeah. I'd be interested to know n- more about as a nosy person. <laughs> um I don't know. Some people, I've seen mixed reviews. I think most people think like it shows that they knew at least suspected something. something. And some people are like, this just looks like a mother who loves her son. And I'm like, I wouldn't want you as my mother in law either. Then (laughs) my first thought was like, so she hated Gabby. Yeah. 
yeah, I guess we'll see if anything comes from that. A lot of people were yesterday saying when the letter came out, you know, she should be charged. She clearly knew what was going on. I don't think there's enough to charge them, but maybe no. to sue them. Yeah. Be interested to see what comes from it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I'd love for the Petitos to win just after what they went through. Yeah. We'll see. Hmm. Okay. So let's get into our episode. We're going to talk about some stalkers today. So let's go. The first case we're going to talk about today is one that hits pretty close to home. It also happened pretty recently. Um, this is the one that kind of triggered us doing this episode, even though we have put it off a few weeks now. <laughs> but this is kind of the one that made us be like, oh, that might be like an interesting subject. Um, so this is the murder of podcaster Zore Sadehi. Um, she was 33 years old and her husband by a stalker, he said it hits a little close to home because she was a podcaster. It's not like she was this like big famous celebrity, um, just f- had some guy who listened to her and became infatuated with her. This morning, new details about a murder involving a podcast host and her husband found dead in their Washington state home. Police say this man, 38-year-old Ramin Hodakaram Rezaei, stalked Zori Sadegi for months after listening to her podcast about gaining employment in the tech industry. The two communicated back and forth through a chat app. Then at some point, things started to take an eerie turn when he contacted her more than 100 times in a single day, according to authorities. Sadegi writing, these delusions make me fear for my life and the lives of my loved ones. ABC News has learned just a week before her death, Sadegi filed a request for an order of protection against the suspect, citing a disturbing pattern of behavior. Police say the suspect, who was a long-haul truck driver, drove all the way from Texas to Washington State at his next stop, the victim's house. According to police, he shot and killed podcaster Zuri Sadegi and her husband before appearing to take his own life. A neighbor says their security camera caught the commotion overnight. It was blood curdling to hear it. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I should have gone back and listened to her or not. Zuri's mother was inside the house, but somehow managed to escape and call 911. This is the absolute worst outcome um, you know, for uh, a stalking case. So she was a tech podcaster. She lived in Redmond, Washington. Her LinkedIn says that she was a software engineer at Promontory Mortgage Path LLC. And she described herself on the website, says, I'm a driven, self-motivated individual looking to expand my horizons by learning to build software the right way as part of a bigger team. I'm self-sufficient and thrive in ambiguity. She lived with her husband Mohammed Nasiri in a $1.6 million home in Redmond. This is a popular area for tech people to live because it's close to the headquarters of Microsoft. A neighbor named Jamie Lynn Burns spoke to the media about how friendly the couple were. They said they were just so friendly and inviting. We were like, oh my gosh, we couldn't have found better neighbors. I love when like neighbors give dumb commentary like that. <laughs> There's always one who wants to insert themselves. Then again, if the news comes up to you, what the fuck are you going to say? <laughs> We believe that Zori's mother was staying with the couple at the time. She just, Zori just had back surgery and wasn't as mobile. So maybe the mother was there helping her or maybe she lived there permanently. Not really sure. There hasn't really been 
clarification on that. Zori's podcast was aimed at helping Farsi-speaking people find jobs in the tech industry. The podcast is how Zori came in contact with her soon-to-be stalker and eventual murderer. His name is Raman Kota Karem Rizei. Kota Karem Rizei, I think is how you – is my best guess at saying it. It's like 13 letters long. But it looks like, yeah, it's very long. Kota Karem Rizei. So as some background into Raman, we believe he's originally from Texas. He had been married to a woman named Nada Meshabim for seven years prior to this. They had a daughter together. The couple was divorced, but they were still close. His ex-wife said Raman often shared details about his love life with her since the two were from Iran and they don't have any relatives in the U.S. Um, and he also owned a trucking company in Texas. Raman came across the show through the app Clubhouse, and he started emailing and messaging Zoe following that. Redmond Police spokesperson Jill Green told the Daily Beast, apparently he got to know her because of a podcast that she was doing, and they struck up kind of a friendship, talked, but then he began to just send her a lot of messages to the point that she decided to disengage and talk to us and our investigators about getting a restraining order. Redmond Police Chief Daryl Lowe said that Zoray got in touch with police regarding harassing behavior in late 2022 after Raman repeatedly contacted her by text and over the phone. He allegedly once called her over 100 times in a single day before resorting to in-person stalking. The officer also said that Raman followed Zoray to a conference in Denver in the latter part of 2022 and had visited her residence prior to the night of the murders. Zori told police that Raman called her more than 10 times a day and left more than 20 daily messages for her husband, some vulgar, angry, and threatening. So I guess she started blocking and blocking and blocking him. Somehow this guy got her husband's number too and was like calling and messaging him as well. Very scary. After Zori filed the first complaint on November 6, 2022, Raman continued to call her throughout November and December and even traveled to the area to stay in hotels close to her home. Zori wrote in the protection order that Raman has bursts of anger and his delusions make me fear for my life and the lives of my loved ones. She also said that Raman said he would show up at the door, burn himself, and set fire to her house by burning the tree that she loves. She also wrote that the man sent her voicemails saying he won't let her go and the only thing that will make all of this stop is if he killed himself or died. I wonder what his, like, end game was. Like, did he want to date her or just wanted her dead? Yeah, I don't know. It's, I don't wonder what their, yeah, and their game plan is and what they think they're going to achieve. Yeah. She also wrote about how she feared her decreased mobility from her surgery would make her an easy target. She wrote, I had major back surgery and my mobility has been affected. I need care 24-7. This makes me fear about my ability to respond to a crisis, especially because Robin has ignored all, all other avenues. All this has caused me great distress and pain, and now I'm suffering from a deep-seated fear for my safety. It has taken a toll on my recovery. I haven't been able to open the curtains in my bedroom out of fear of him being outside watching me. The protection order was 12 pages long, filled with information about inappropriate communication by Raman. She outlined in the document that Raman said the only way he would leave her alone is if she was dead. On December 20th, Raman went to Zori's house to deliver flowers to her. He waited to go to the door until her husband had left the house. He also sent her gifts on two other occasions and had once arranged for a jazz band to play outside her house for two hours, but thankfully that was canceled before it began. 
Um, Robin's ex-wife has also said that he told her he was dating Zora and that he did not believe she was married. And he then told her that he and Zora had broken up against his wishes. She said her ex-husband's behavior changed after that. She said he was crying the final few times she spoke with him. As Robin was a long-haul trucker, police allegedly had trouble tracking him down to actually serve this protection order. The police spokesperson, Jill Green, said, Our detectives had warrants to get information from his phone and were trying to serve the no-contact order to the suspect, but not done so yet, being that he is a trucker and he's hard to pin down. Raman's stalking of Zoray continued right up until the time of the murders. On February 28, 2023, he left her two voicemails, which she said were vulgar, angry, and threatening. She also said he installed an app on his phone to record her without consent. I just, I want to know, like, what these messages said and stuff. Me too. I'd love to read the transcripts of them, but. Yeah, just, I just want to know, like, what he was thinking or what. Just very strange. Um, There's a screenshot of some of the incidents that she outlined in the protective order. It's kind of long. I'll go through, like, some of them, but just, like, November 6th, told Raman to leave me alone. November 8th, told Raman to leave me alone. November 10th, blocked all the numbers that she had. November 13th, blocked all numbers in social media. When she wrote continuously, received messages from different numbers, different accounts, had to keep blocking. He sent a text message saying that he wants to talk. She told him that she can't talk November 18th. On November 20th, she again had to tell him, I don't want to talk to him or hear his voice or talk to him via text. November 21st, he called her from an inn near her house. Uh, November 21st again, called on a private number. I answered when I found out it was him. I told him to not call, leave me alone. Uh, He said that he was in her neighborhood and she told him to go away. So even just all that was in the span of a month. Again, he's calling from private numbers. She blocked, she made so her phone can't get calls from private numbers. Um, And the same goes for December, just him he, then he starts using the Telegram app, saying that he was near her house, called from an inn nearby, called from an inn nearby. Um, she had surgery on the 13th. Then her husband left for Australia on the 20th. That's when he showed up at the door with flowers, literally like a few minutes after the husband left. She called the police. Uh, there's also something he sent her a neck scarf, and police took that as evidence. So just some examples of what was going on. How stressful. I know, especially feeling like you just can't get help. I was thinking about when I was reading the notes before, I was like, I would, I'd have to like leave. I'd have to go to a different state or something. But obviously not everyone has that. Like you have a job. You can't just freaking leave. And also she was basically incapacitated. Like she. Yeah, true. Ca- it was like a worst walk. case scenario. Even in that thing, she talks about how she didn't, doesn't know what day the gifts got, got delivered because she couldn't check them out for three days because she couldn't yeah. walk basically. So in the early morning hours of. Friday, March 10th, 2023, Raman broke into Zori's house where she, her husband, and her mother were all sleeping. Broke into the house through the window of Zori's mother's bedroom where the two had an altercation. Thankfully, the mother managed to flee to the house and run to the neighbors to get help. Zori's husband, Muhammad, was shot as he tried to flee the scene before collapsing and dying in the front yard. He'd been shot in the chest. When police entered the home, they found Zori and Raman both deceased, both Found in the primary bedroom of the house, Zori had been shot to death and Raman died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. After the murders, police chief Daryl Lowe spoke and said, A restraining order is simply a piece of paper that allows officers to take enforcement action should a suspect violate the court order, but a piece of paper does not protect a person when someone is intent on causing them harm. 
In this case, the victim did everything they possibly could. It's a tragic event. Like, I get what he's saying because it is true, but it's just a shitty comment also because I feel like they're trying to scapegoat from not being able to get him the restraining order. And I just think that was such bullshit. Like, as a long-haul trucker, there'd be ways to track where he is. Like, either if he was working for a company or there'd be GPS on his truck. Like, there'd be a whole bunch of regulations that a long-haul trucker would need to meet in terms of reporting and record keeping just way outside of zori's house clearly like he and, was there. Do, and i do agree like in the end it probably wouldn't have made any difference but you never know maybe it would have deterred him a little bit we just you know or bought her more time until she like was, was mobile well again yeah. yeah or and i guess too it is very unusual that a stalking would actually ever come to murder like you know and, and i'm not i'm not making this any less like it's a horrible thing but I guess this would be the last thing that you would really ever expect would happen it does seem it seems like it escalated very quickly as well but I think what he's saying is true and I do think there needs to be like a better I don't know what system because the restraining order really doesn't do anything but I think that they're just kind of saying it in like not as like an excuse but they're trying to say as like a defense because they didn't get it to him which is seems shitty it's kind of like it's almost a bit and i don't know i'm hope i'm using this right it's almost a bit of a gaslighting statement because it's like yeah. oh yeah you know she it wouldn't matter and there's nothing else she yeah it's just a bit yeah but it's just like that sentence itself doesn't that make you think like oh she did everything she could mm. but she still died so what what can we do to fix this like someone yeah. shouldn't do everything that they could possibly do and still be murdered yeah, and still have no proper outcome. And try to get, like, all the proper help and all that. It's fucking bullshit. So that is it. I, obviously, we don't think there'll be much else. I hope her mother is doing all right. Um, but now, essentially, the perpetrator's dead. I do wish that we could find out more about it, but now that they're all dead, I doubt anything else will come out. Maybe they will end up releasing, but then I like guess what what, what is what is the benefit to them releasing it? Like, unless it could help other people, essentially, it's I just... just want to know what – I know that – the motive isn't always they want to date them or they're so in love with them. But he just seemed like not even interested in that. He just like was obsessed with her and wanted to kill her. It was weird. Yeah. All right. So when I was looking up other kind of well-known stalking cases that we could discuss, one of the most documented cases is of stalking resulting in murder is that of Rebecca Schaefer. So Rebecca was 21 when she was murdered in Los Angeles in July 1989. So it's a little bit of an older one, but it's a very high-profile case. Rebecca was born on November 6, 1967 in Eugene, Oregon. Her parents were Dana and Dr. Benson Schaefer. She was the only child. She was raised in Portland and she attended Lincoln High School. So she apparently aspired at an early age to become a rabbi, but she changed her mind and she was offered some teen modeling roles. In 1984, when she was 16, she worked with Elite Model Management in New York for the summer, and with her parents' permission, she stayed there to pursue a modeling career. So she began her acting career in late 1984. She had roles on Guiding Light, One Life to Live, and My Sister Sam, amongst others, and she also had supporting roles in several movies. So she was very attractive, very, you know, kind of wholesome looking. It's not unusual to think that someone would be, you know, attracted to her essentially yeah she's very cute she has kind of like a little baby face yeah look so a man named robert john bardo began stalking rebecca in 1986 he would have been around 16 at that time and she was 18 robert had previously been obsessed with a child peace activist named samantha smith who was killed in a plane crash at age 13 in 1985 which 13 that's no 
it's bad enough to be obsessed, but obsessed with a 13-year-old. And he's really young too, or to already be like behaving this way. So he would, yeah, he would have been 14 at the time, but still, yeah. Robert traveled to Maine at one point in an attempt to meet Samantha, but he was stopped by police and turned around. After Samantha died, he turned his attention to Rebecca. He wrote her numerous letters and she replied to one of those, which was probably, you know, the worst thing she could have done. Obviously, she didn't know that, but just spurred him on. Rebecca responded, writing that his letter was the most beautiful that she'd ever received. On her letter, she drew a peace sign and a heart and signed it with, with love from Rebecca. The day Robert received the letter, he wrote in his diary, when I think of her, I would like to become famous to impress her. So in 1987, he traveled to LA and he attempted to get onto the set of My Sister Sam. He was turned away by security. So at this point, he was still very young. Like he would have only been 17 and he's going to LA to try and track down this girl. Yeah, it's crazy what these people can do so young back in the Mm. 80s. Live in New York alone, (laughs) harass a girl. So he came back one month later armed with a knife. Security again turned him away. He wrote in his diary again and he wrote, I don't lose, period. So the rejection, though, does seem to have deterred him for a little while. He went back to Tucson, Arizona, where he shifted his obsessions towards Madonna and Tiffany. I don't know if you guys remember Tiffany, but she was like a pop star back then. Robert became obsessed with Rebecca again when he saw her in a scene from Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills. In the scene, she was in bed with another actor. He decided that she should be punished for becoming another Hollywood whore. He wrote in his diary again that she had become one more of the bitches of Hollywood. People like this infuriate me. He's an early incel. Yeah, Yeah, incel before incel was a fucking word, but ugh. So Robert paid a private detective agency $250 to find Rebecca's home address from DMV Records. That would have been a lot of money back then, like for a 17-year-old to pay someone 250 bucks to do that. Yeah, like what are his parents up to? What do they think Mm. he's doing? (laughs) Where's he getting this money? It's just... So his brother helped him to buy a gun. I have read online that Robert did try to buy a gun and he was denied. This is what I've read online. It's a quote. It says, when Robert Giambardo tried to purchase a Ruger Magnum at Jensen's Firearm in Tucson, Arizona in the summer of 1989, he filled out the paperwork answering yes to having having been committed to a mental health facility, which means that he was disqualified. He was also underage, but he had a fake driver's license that would have worked. The salesman who was a member of the Air Force when he told Robert that he could not purchase the gun, said that he got irate and he wanted to fill out another copy. <laughs> so I that's guess- that's going to work. <laughs> so I'm guessing he thought, shit, I can just write no and I'll get one. And they're going to be like, shit, get this guy a gun. <laughs> so the salesperson said absolutely no way and he said for Robert to get the fuck out. So then he told Robert that there was actually absolutely no way he could own a firearm and to get the fuck out. So they apparently knew that this guy was sketchy, so they hung his form on the wall and wrote, do not sell to this individual. But the next morning, he came in with his brother who purchased the same gun and then gave it to Robert outside of the shop, which is a violation of federal law. His brother would have known because it asks you that question on the form and warns that such purchases are a violation of federal law. So imagine, it's so weird that he went in with his brother and they, I guess you can't deny the brother but it's so weird that they wouldn't you just go to another gun shop i don't know it's very strange yeah i still would have been like no mm. so anyway robert went back to la after this for the third time he walked around the neighborhood where rebecca lived asking people if she lived there and if they had seen her obviously at this point he didn't quite know if the information that he'd paid the 250 dollars for was correct so he was kind of scouting the neighborhood to make sure that she did live there 
Once he was certain that the address for her that the address he had for her was correct, he rang the doorbell. She was waiting for a movie script to be delivered, so I guess she assumed that was that, and she answered the door. Robert showed her the letter and the autograph that she'd previously sent him. She became creeped out, rightly so, and told her told him not to come to the house again. He left and went to a diner and had breakfast. He went back to her apartment an hour later and knocked on the door again. When Rebecca opened the door, he said she had a cold look on her face. So she was pissed off that he'd come back, which is I mean, like, yeah, who wouldn't be? So he pulled out the handgun that his brother helped him buy and shot her twice in the chest at point blank range. As she fell to the ground, she uttered, why? Robert later spoke about the murder to the police and he said she had this kid voice, sounded like a little brat or something, said I was wasting her time, wasting her time. No matter what, I thought it was a very callous thing to say to a fan. I grab the bag, the gun's still in the bag. I grab it by the trigger. I come around and kapow and she's screaming, why? And it's like, oh God. So he's. Like, I know this is clearly mental illness, but like, what the fuck? Imagine you murder some girl that you stalked for like no reason. There's no reason. Not that there's ever a reason, but this is literally no reason. And then you're going to basically like mock her and make fun of how she died. Like it's so, uh, I just don't even have the words for people like this. So a neighbor named Richard Goldman heard the gunshots and he rushed to the lobby and found Rebecca's body. He saw a man in a yellow shirt, which was Robert, running away from the scene. Rebecca was rushed to see the Sinai Medical Center where she was pronounced dead 30 minutes after her arrival. Robert fled back to Tucson where he was arrested the next day. He was found after motorists called 911 to report a man running around in traffic on the interstate. Once he was taken into custody, he confessed to Rebecca's murder. A year after the murder, Robert did give an interview and he said, I was a fan of hers and I may have carried it too far. May. But a, yeah. But a lot of things have appeared in the press to make me out to be a monster. If I had one wish were it to ever come true, it would be for Rebecca Schaefer to be alive today. Robert was sentenced to life without parole on December 20, 1991, and he made a statement It said, the idea that I killed her for fame is totally ridiculous. I do realize the magnitude of what I've done. I don't think it needs to be compounded by a bunch of lies because she's an actress. Again, still blaming other people. Like you were made out to be a monster, not by the press, being the press because she's an actress. You're made out, you were a fucking monster because you murdered someone and you're a dick. Like Deflecting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh, the press, the Mm. telling lies about me. Good. (laughs) Fuck off. So one, I guess- you know, positive from this whole horrible thing is that Rebecca's murder played a role in a law being established in California that prohibits the DMV from releasing addresses. It also prompted the LAPD to create their first threat management TV. Uh, TV. <laughs> it also prompted the LAPD to create their first threat management team. According to the legislation that was created, a stalker is defined as someone who willfully, maliciously and repeatedly follows or harasses another victim and who makes a credible threat with the intent to place the victim or a victim's immediate family in fear of their safety. There must be at least two incidents to constitute the crime and show a continuity of purpose or credible threat. So um, I believe Robert is still alive in prison. He has never gotten out, which is good. Um, good. Yeah, he fucking dies in there. Yeah. So that's a very sad one. I just can't even imagine the fear that she must have felt when she opened the door the second time and saw the gun. It's horrific. And he – do you see what he looks like? He looks like a big dumb idiot. <laughs> sounds on, on point for him. Um, so the next one is one that probably a good amount of people – have heard of it's a more recent 
one, it's the stalking murder case of Christina Grimmie. She was a singer and a YouTuber. She was murdered at the age of 22 in 2016 in Orlando, Florida. Tonight, chilling new details about that concert horror. Authorities investigating why moments after this exuberant performance, a suspect they've identified as Kevin James Loibel opened fire at singer Christina Grimmie, fatally shooting her. The four gunshots were pop, 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 pop. Earlier Friday night, no indication that the Orlando venue would become a crime scene. I came in like the wrecking ball. The 22-year-old, known for finishing third on The Voice, greeting her fans on Twitter. We're in Orlando today. Please come to the show if you live near Orlando, Florida. After the show, autographs and selfies, all while a man carrying two guns and a hunting knife has made his way past security. There are no metal detectors. Um, as far as I'm aware, the people are not patted down. I thought he was just a nervous fan. You, you, what, what can you expect? You never, you never think someone's just going to pull a gun out. Two minutes later, authorities say the armed 27-year-old shoots Grimmy, leaving her critically wounded. I walk into the room and there was no one in there but the, uh, the gentleman performing CPR and Christina. Her brother Mark tackling the attacker, who fatally shoots himself. Very heroic actions by Marcus Grimmy. Grimmy is rushed to the hospital. Overnight, the tragic news. Her publicist announcing Grimmy did not survive. Tonight, authorities searching the attacker's phone and computer for a motive. It does appear that he came here uh, to commit this crime. She was born to Tina and Albert Grimmy on March 12, 1994, in New Jersey, and she had an older brother named Marcus. When she was six, her father noticed that she had a talent for singing and she started playing piano at the age of 10 and said she played by ear. Christina began posting to YouTube in 2009. At age 15, her username was ZeldaXLove64. She said that she started her YouTube channel so that people could connect with her music. Her first video that she uploaded was a cover of Hannah Montana's Don't Want to Be Torn. Love Hannah Montana. <laughs> in 2011, she placed second in a My YouTube competition behind Selena Gomez. She went on to perform backup vocals for Selena during the 2011 DigiTour. She opened for Selena and the Jonas Brothers during the Concert of Hope, so she's like pretty uh, getting to be a, a bigger deal. Um, she released an EP in June 2011. It debuted at number 35 on the Billboard 200 chart. Things started to really ramp up for her when she appeared on The Ellen Show in October 2011, and she performed at the American Music Awards in November 2011. I was actually watching videos of her singing today. She did have a really good voice. I'll, I'll put in some clips of her singing. We clawed, we chained our hearts and then we jumped. Never asking why. We kissed, I fell under your spell of love. No one could deny.
she moved to LA in 2012 to pursue her singing career, and she signed with Creative Artists Agency. By April 2013, her YouTube channel had more than 375 million views, and she had more than 2 million subscribers. In 2014, she auditioned for The Voice, and she performed Miley Cyrus's Wrecking Ball. All the judges, Adam Levine, Usher, Shakira, and Blake Shelton, turned their chairs for her. She opted for Adam Levine after he told her that she had the potential to be a huge star. Usher said that she was a baby Celine Dion, and Shakira said that her voice was out of this world. Selena Gomez and Justin Bieber supported her during her time on The Voice, and she finished in third place. But Carson Daly said that he was shocked that she didn't win. So this gives you some background on where she was going. She was a rising star, very talented, and she did have like some sort of fan base. Like She was on a pretty big show. She had a lot of followers. She seemed to be very hardworking as well. Like, when you actually look at the stuff that she did before she died, she was still so young, but she had accomplished and you know completed so much. Yeah. June 10th, 2016, Christina performed at the Plaza Live in Orlando. She posted earlier that day on her social media that she was going to be there. She asked her fans to attend. Um, It's estimated that around 300 fans attended. She ended her performance around 10 p.m. and went to sign some autographs inside the venue. Around 100 fans were waiting to meet her. And at 10.24, a fan named Kevin James Loibel, 27 years old, walked up to Christina. He didn't say a word. She mistook this for shyness and she opened her arms to offer him a hug. I guess this was something that she did if she thought maybe a fan was too shy to say hi to her, which kind of shows you what kind of person she was. Kevin then pulled out a Glock 19 pistol and shot Christina three times at point blank range. She fell to the floor and a scuffle ensued between Kevin and Christina's brother, who was her road manager. Kevin broke free and fatally shot himself. CPR was performed on Christina and she was taken to the Orlando Regional Medical Center in critical condition, but she was pronounced dead just before 11 p.m. that night. Uh, Autopsy showed that she had been shot three times, once in the head and twice in the chest. When police examined Kevin's body, they found two handgun magazines in his pocket, a knife strapped to his ankle, a Florida driver's license, a ticket to Christina's show, and a hotel key for the courtyard by Marriott in Orlando. Police went to the hotel and showed the front desk manager a photo of Kevin, and the manager instantly asked if he was the one who shot Christina. The manager said he was strange, that he checked into the hotel the day before the concert, had no luggage, and paid $269 for the room. Police investigated the hotel room Kevin had stayed in. Um, They said A reporter said there was no luggage, no personal belongings visible. The bed looked as if he slept on top of the covers. In the trash, it appeared he had purchased some food from the hotel snack bar and ate it in his room. Police spoke to Kevin's family, who said that he rarely left his room except to go to his job at Best Buy. They had never heard him mention Christina, never saw him watch The Voice. They didn't know he owned any guns. They did say that he spent a great deal of time on the computer in his room. It's like, red flag, hello. I feel like anytime I hear like, um, he never really left his room, but he spent a lot of time on his computer. We don't really know him. We don't act. We never, we never spoke to him. Just automatically makes me think of Adam Lanza, the uh, Sandy Hook shooter, because it was the same thing. Um, Kevin's like a lot of the stuff about him reminds me of Adam Lanza, actually. Kevin's Best Buy supervisor, Luke Dahl, described him as socially awkward and detached. He said Kevin had no social skills and worked in the back of the store where he had no interaction with customers. Kevin had encrypted his phone, which meant that police weren't able to extract any data from it. He also intentionally destroyed the hard drive in his computer. 
Corey Deddington, who was Kevin's friend for 15 years, said that he was his only friend in the world. He told police that Kevin had become fixated on Christina over the past year. He said that Kevin watched everything having to do with her. Corey said Kevin spent most of his waking hours watching Christina on YouTube, as well as constantly monitoring her social media accounts. Despite following her on social media, Kevin himself didn't have a Facebook, Twitter, or any other social media profiles. Kevin claimed he had been an atheist, but told Corey that Christina's Christianity had spurred a change of heart. He told Corey that Christina had helped him to see the world in a different way. Before the murder, Kevin lost 50 pounds, underwent LASIK surgery, had his teeth whitened, got hair implants, and he told Corey that he'd done all of it for Christina. His parents had no idea, did they? Like, no. They're just like, no, he's been in his room. He's got LASIK surgery, hair implants, te- lost 50 pounds, got his teeth whitened. Uh, maybe they just didn't want to tell the cops anything. Around two months before the murder, Corey became concerned about Kevin's obsession with Christina. When he tried to raise the topic with Kevin, he would become angry and defensive. Kevin told Corey that Christina was his soulmate. At least five of Kevin's Best Buy co-workers told police they knew about his obsession with Christina, and they would good-naturedly tease him about his internet crush. In terms of security for the event, bags should have been checked, but there weren't any metal detectors and the attendees were not frisked. Kevin had never been previously arrested and had purchased the two guns legally. He was in the police system for minor issues such as petty theft and a 2008 car accident. He was once accused of battery, but no charges were filed after the victim became uncooperative. Christina's family released the following statement. They said, It's with a heavy heart that we can confirm that Christina has passed and went home to be with the Lord. She was shot at her show in Orlando and unfortunately did not survive the gunshot wounds. We ask at this time that you respect the privacy of her family and friends in their time of mourning. If you'd like to give back to Christina's family and her memory, please consider donating to the family's GoFundMe page in their time of need. Adam Levine also made a statement. He said, Bahati and I are absolutely devastated and heartbroken by Christina Grimmie's tragic death. Our hearts go out to her family. Christina was a natural, a gifted talent that comes along so rarely. She was taken from us too soon. This is yet another senseless act of extreme violence. I'm left stunned and confused how these things can conceivably continue to happen in our world. It's so sad. Like, it's the, um, like that was the absolute prime of her life. I, I, if she was alive now, I have no doubt that she would be a massive, massive star. Yeah, same. She was very like on brand with like the Disney Channel, Jonas yeah. Brothers, Hannah Montana that were like big at that time as well. It's just, it's crazy that people, and again, I know it's mental health, but that this guy could make up a whole relationship with someone that never happened, like thinking this was like his, it, she was a soulmate. And then one day she must have done something that pissed him off and changed his mind. It's just wild. Yeah, it's it's it just always blows my mind. It blows my mind how people what they think they are entitled to do. Like and I, I know it's mental illness as well, but yeah, just how it can become so blown up in someone's mind, either a relationship or a, do you know what I mean? Like obviously this is not a relationship, but he believed it was. It's and you've just got no idea that it's even happening. <laughs> and he's a bit older, like he was twenty seven, but not not to like blame the parents. Obviously, it's hard to be a parent, but. When they say things like, I don't know, he never left his room. He like didn't talk a lot. We don't know anything about him. He just goes to his room, is on his computer all the time, and that's it. It's like you gotta fucking help them. <laughs> like yeah. they don't they don't know that they're weird, essentially, because they it's mental illness. And it's the same thing I was saying with Adam Lanza, like oh, so much 
obviously Adam Lanza was the shitty guy who shot up the school. He he's a bad person. Not taking any blame off of him, but his mom was so negligent that if maybe she gave a single fuck or tried to help get him help at all, like that could have been maybe avoided. It's just like people who have mental illness need help from other people, and I get that it's hard to like approach someone about that. Um, How old like was Adam taboo. Lanza when he did it? He was, I think he was at least 20. So this guy's like a little bit older. Like I get kind of, you know, at 26, you would just assume that maybe this is just how he is. He's reclusive. He's quiet. He likes just being on his computer all day. He hasn't done anything so far. No. And he, from all accounts, you know, he did, he seemed creepy, but he didn't have a history of it. Like, it's not like um, the first ramen who we spoke about in the first one, who had a documented history of months and months and months of stalking. This was just seems to be like a quiet obsession. Like we've never ever heard that he contacted Christina in other ways. Like he may have, but it's never come out that also, he was actually he in contact with her. He may have weird his whole friggin' life and his parents just didn't know because it yeah. seems like they turned a blind eye to it. Adam Lanza was 20, but with that specifically, like because so much came out in the FBI papers just about – his like upbringing and how he was raised now he had like severe mental illness and his mom like let him stop taking his medication let him like sleep on the floor in his room let him just do like all this weird shit and never got him help just let him be in like a petri dish of toxic shit i guess that kevin's family maybe by that point when there had been no um illegal behavior that they knew of or really worrying behavior maybe they just assumed you know a bit strange but harmless and yeah, I guess it's just like a fine line yeah. to walk. And I'm not trying to like blame the parents, but just more so making the statement of like, yes, it's hard to talk to people about mental illness if you think that they have mental illness or if they're acting strange and they're unaware of it. But I think it's something that more people need to do or at least make maybe he knew he was weird and like knew something was wrong, but he didn't feel comfortable like talking about it. I don't know. All these people clearly just had mental illness and. It's just frustrating when innocent people, like girls living like the prime of their lives, basically get murdered and get their their shine put out by some fucking psychopath. And I also wonder now too if um like the three cases that we spoke about today, obviously one was quite old and the other two, like Zoe's one was the most recent, but now I wonder if there's more of a trail for for stalky behavior. Like you can say, yep, they contacted me on all these numbers, all these apps, whereas obviously Rebecca – Wrote, he wrote a letter to her. That was the only way that essentially he could contact her. So yeah. It's, yeah. Like Zore had a ton of stuff that was in that that was listed because she also wrote it all down herself mm. too because she was smart. But even with um, the Christina Grimmie guy, he he was clearly very smart where he encrypted his phone and destroyed his hard drive. So who even knows what was on there? And you have to wonder too, like I'm just, you know, thinking out loud, if stalking is almost easier these days now that you have all these other ways that you can contact someone, whereas the old days it would have been like a landline, a letter, or actually going to their house. Now you've got all these different ways that you can find someone and get in touch with someone. And everyone's got yeah. all these digital addresses, like, you know, Facebook, Instagram, emails, all these different ways that you can be found. So it's a little bit scary. Yeah. It just makes people so much more like accessible. Like with Christina Grimmie, she had all those videos out. Whereas if she didn't have all these videos out, she wasn't putting herself out there on social media. He may not have even ever found her and people get weird. I was just reading about it recently, even with influencers today, it's called like parasocial relationships. And it says, 
A parasocial relationship is a one-sided relationship formed when one party extends energy, interest, and time, and the other person doesn't know they exist. So basically, like, influencers. Like, people out there think these influencers are, like, their friends, and they know what's going on in their lives, and, like, their buddies, but, like, obviously the influencer doesn't really know who the fuck they are. But someone posted about recently because someone like wrote her a nasty message and how they like used to love her and they thought that she was like this type of person and xyz but now she posted this and now clearly she's not what she thought she was but it's like these people don't really know you it's kind of but like Rebecca's opinions of you. Schaefer one, how he got really mad when she appeared in like a sex scene or you know a bed scene yeah. in the movie he's like now you've destroyed me i'm you know i'm coming to get you it's yeah. they take it personally when it actually has nothing to do with them yeah, it's definitely interesting. I'll have to read more about it, like parasocial relationships. And even with us, like I we have I have followers on Instagram now. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, I want to post about my life because there's so many people who follow the podcast that I've talked to that I like and I think are funny that I chat with on my Instagram. But then you hear stories like this and I'm like, eh, I don't know if I really want to post about my life online. So it's always like a struggle. Yeah, it's and it is interesting because it's it is like you know you don't even if someone's not sending you creepy messages you don't know that someone's not watching and you know it's yeah it's or you don't know if one day you're going to post something that's going to trigger them to just turn on you yeah um so I did find some interesting stats about stalking an estimated 1.7 million people are stalked each year in the U.S. there's some interesting info I found in the Guardian it said they conducted a six-month study by the University of Gloucestershire and it found that stalking was present in 94 percent of the 358 cases of criminal homicides they looked that they looked at so basically murders in all those cases 94 percent of the murder victims were stalked surveillance activity including covert watching was recorded 63 percent of the time 85 percent of these kind of stalking homicides occur in the victim's home and they found that in almost every case the killer displayed obsessive fixated behavior associated with stalking some motivations for stalking include a delusional belief in romantic destiny which that seems to kind of be the case with zore um, and maybe christina grimmie a desire to reclaim a prior relationship a sadistic urge to torment the victim or a psychotic over-identification with the victim and the desire to replace him or him or her. I feel like Rebecca Schaefer's one may be more so the identification of the victim. I don't think it sounds like he thought he was in a relationship with her, but he wanted, I don't know, maybe wanted to be. It's. I think that he, it was like he just put her on this pedestal and thought she was like this perfect angel. There's He projected this like image of her how he thought she should be and then when she wasn't that he was like offended yeah um and i feel like too there's some cases that you don't really always consider the stalking aspect like with the delphi murders for example i believe those girls were stalked and by stalking i mean that the person catfished them probably knew they were going to be on the bridge that day like was watching for when they were there and then you know that's when obviously libby started recording like that that is a stalking event essentially Mm-hmm. Um, and with the with the Moscow murders too, I also wouldn't be surprised. I know that they've said there's you know allegations of stalking, but I do believe that probably at least one of them was stalked, um, maybe via social media, maybe via her workplace. I believe well, that even, that will likely to come out more it once even that came trial out progresses. That he even came out that he was at least stalking the house. Like remember when they released yeah. his cell phone being tracked? Like he was outside the house a few times. Yeah, either like seeing what was going on or canvassing the area but he 
was there multiple times. But yeah, like right now, people don't really think of that essentially as a stalking situation. But And I also wouldn't be surprised if like, we don't really know, but I also wouldn't be surprised if it's one side, well, I'm assuming it was one-sided by him, like either... I don't even know if, like my my theory it was, is it was likely probably Kaylee that was being stalked. So we'll just, for this assumption, go with that. But like, for instance, maybe she came across him and rejected him or was a little bit friendly to him at her work or something like that. But I, I mm-hmm. don't feel like she knew that he was stalking her like this. It doesn't kind of seem like, like that anyway. How Rebecca Schaefer answered that fan mail, like that yeah. was all it took. And you know what? I'm, I have no doubt. Like maybe he wrote a really lovely message and I don't know, drew some hearts or something. She'd be like, "Oh, that's really sweet." Like she, you know, just innocently. Oh, mm-hmm. this is such a lovely letter, and then he's run with that, and he's like, "Wow, she like likes me." Mm. I don't know. Just very sad and scary. That be careful. These, like none of them even. None of these girls fed into it at all. It's not like it was this like toxic relationship where these guys just started it themselves and created this whole fantasy in their heads, basically. And these girls, women, were all just like the victims of it. Yeah. Very scary. Very sad. Don't even have advice on how to avoid. I think you just got to be careful. Like, and I, I never thought I'd say this, but maybe we should all learn a little bit from Kim Kardashian, where she now only posts about places she's been way after, after the, the fact, event yeah. like when I was in Japan and she's posting Japan I'm like wow and then I also realized she was at in in Las Vegas at the same time so it clearly yeah. been like weeks before that she held on to this content so she was very very out of the area well especially because with what happened to her she used to post more where she was and that's how she got robbed in Paris in France, and, yeah and how traumatizing mm-hmm. is that they tied her up and put her in a bathtub she thought she was gonna die so yeah they've talked about it now that they They'll post pictures, but they're old. They're usually not anywhere near where they are then. Yeah. And things like, you know, remove identifiers if you want to post photos, you know, like especially of kids and stuff, like, you know, don't post photos outside their school, you know, just things like that that can make it easy for someone to find you or your family. Just minimize as much as you can. Yeah. It's like, and it's sad that we have to do that, but it's like the one way you can kind of maybe protect yourself. Yeah, exactly. then you never know. You could run into someone at the grocery store who suddenly becomes obsessed with you or something. Yeah, you never know. Well, on that note, on that sad note that we're all, it's a hopeless world. <laughs> but that is it for those stories. I wish that we could end on a, a happier note or some positive advice, but sometimes that's not always the case. Um, if you guys want to find out more about these cases, they will be on our blog at truecrimesocietyblog.com, us on Instagram, True Crime Society. We're always posting stories and updates there. If you want to follow our personal accounts, mine is StuffSum underscore Olivia's is TCS Olivia, even though maybe, maybe we should have private Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's fine. We're, we'll, we'll just be careful. What else? If you follow us on Spotify, make sure, I mean, if you're listening on Spotify, make sure you're following us, answer little questions, little polls we have on there, Um, wherever you're listening, subscribe, rate, review, share it with your friends, share it to your Instagram story. All that stuff is big help to us. And we love you all for doing that. That is it. Thank you guys for listening. Stay safe out there. Protect yourselves in any way you can. Peace out. (laughs) 